This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scriptures send all of us. We here at a Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm your host, Willie Grills, here with the Reverend Zelwyn Heidi, and we're talking about Jude again. We thought it was going to be one episode. Honestly, I did. I was skeptical, and here we are, part two. Good stuff. I was I was planning on just one, too, and yeah, like you said, we ran into two because there's just so much to dig into here. A whole lot in a very short amount of verses. So Jude, um, let's uh, let's sort of catch up from last episode. What's the what's going on here? What's Jude writing about? Well, Jude is writing to some congregations about uh, false teachers in their midst, and so far he's been talking and using a lot of uh, different examples to talk about how how these false teachers will suffer uh, the judgment of God because of their errors. And that's kind of where we left off, because we only got about seven verses into this. That's right, seven <laughs> verses into the only chapter. So if you're to be chapter one, right there. Got seven verses in. And so now, of this broadcast, we're going to be getting into the character of the false teachers themselves, what was really going on here uh, in the at the time of the church, or the time that uh, Jude writes, rather, and then bring it up uh, to our modern audience and kind of contemporize it a little bit. You know, what does it have to say to us? You know, what is this book saying to Christians today who oftentimes face very similar teachings uh, to the to the old heresies? So it's very relevant, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to we don't want to try to talk about the historical background in such a way that it only becomes relevant for Jude's day. I mean, the the scriptures speak to all times and are relevant to all of God's history. And uh, and so, yes, we can absolutely learn about the character of false teachers also in our own and day. It's, it's interesting. Jude is going to do a very similar thing because he's going to take uh, events from a thousand years before and then use them to teach against the false teachers of his day. Yes. I mean, so this this fact that he is drawing on all of these historical examples um, should, I mean, should teach us also how we can apply them to our own day uh, so that we who follow, you know, what, 2,000 years after Jude wrote his epistle uh, can still use his examples to talk about the danger of false teaching in the church. Well, let's dig in. You want to read for us first? Uh, let's take, let's say, verse 8, verses 8 to 11. All right, 8 to 11. Uh, Jude writes, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. All right, so the first thing that's going on, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So a lot going on there. Relying on dreams. This goes back to what we talked about. Perhaps these are the proto-Gnostics. Relying on dreams is 
is basically saying they are getting a hidden revelation. They're receiving some sort of special revelation that's known only to them that only they can impart. Yeah, this this hidden knowledge. Um, and it, even if it even if it didn't come to them by revelation, they believe that they just have a deeper understanding of how things really are. And uh, all of us poor Christians that don't have this deeper understanding, uh, well, we're just second rate at best. Right. And this is the this is sort of an interesting um, thing here uh, with any false teacher uh, who claims to receive a vision or a dream or something like that. The question I always have is, are these men simply hucksters? Are they con artists or are they actually being deceived by something more malevolent? Is it actually a demonic um you know, a demonic illusion. And it could go either way. I mean, you get you get the sense of both in Jude, that these men are obviously influenced by demons just based on what they teach. But then in the later examples he's going to use, um, you know, perhaps they are merely swindlers. You know, they're, they're just sort of fabricating things um, in order to in order to achieve influence or to gain wealth. Yeah, and I'm sure there are some false teachers out there who are just pure swindlers. They know that they're selling selling you a line, but they do it anyway because they're just greedy. Um, but I'm sure there's also plenty out there who sincerely believe what they teach, uh, but without recognizing that they are uh, deceived. Yeah, and this is one of the things that makes false teachers so persuasive is is often they're not swindlers in the true sense. They they believe sincerely their message. And that's very persuasive to the hearer and to their believers. And that's one of the things that we have to be careful with because zeal does not necessarily equal fidelity. Yes, absolutely. Just because they're on on fire for what they teach doesn't mean that somehow they're teaching the truth. You could be on fire for a, a bald-faced lie and teach it you know, as, as though it were the truth, and, but that doesn't make it any more true. Right. I mean, uh, phrenology was extraordinarily popular at one time, <laughs> and yet it's mostly been debunked, except yeah. for a few hangers mostly. on. Mostly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. I mean, it, it's one of those sorts of things. So, yeah, so they're relying on this revelation. They're relying on their dreams. Defile the flesh and reject authority. So let's let's tackle defiling the flesh here. The flesh is a very rich word in scripture and sometimes a very loaded word. With with defiling the flesh here, um what we're pro- what they're probably talking about is uh much of the license and the abandon that they had with regard to their body. I mean, since they they believe they despised the material realm, they believed that the body was ultimately nothing, and so they did things that would that would be sin, and and in doing and in doing so uh, defiled uh, defiled themselves. And keep in mind, just one verse before Sodom and Gomorrah has been used as the example. Uh, the surrounding city, or Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, and likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And really, it's literally not unnatural desire. It's it's uh, other flesh. It's strange flesh. Mm-hmm. And so there's that there's that uh, narrative connection there. So we've got that. Yeah, since the body means nothing, let's just simply uh, destroy it. Now, how would that have manifested itself uh, at this time? Mostly uh, in in this uh, Hellenistic context, it's going to be through sexual sins. 
Um, I don't know that we necessarily have the level of body mutilation that we see in other forms of paganism, but you can correct me if I'm wrong there. No, I, I, I don't think that they would engage in that kind of mutilation per se, but they're definitely engaging in all sorts of uh, sexual, what we would consider to be sexual depravity. Right. Because their their idea of what is acceptable in terms of, of their sexuality is a very different from uh, from a Christian one. Yeah, I noticed you said from a Christian one, not from a, uh, you know, current perspective. <laughs> yeah, I we I mean we are we are kind of slouching towards Gamora here. Um Sla- that's that's being optimistic. Yeah, well, I know. I know. <laughs> but no, um that's that's very well said. That's very well said. So yeah, uh, but but this sort of wanton um uh this wantonness um really caught up in their own passions sort of thing and really excusing it through their teaching. Yeah. Is what's at play here. And then, so they defile the flesh and they reject authority. Now that sort of brings us right back to um, verse six with the angels who did not stay within their own positions. So now you have it connected again. Yeah. But in this case, uh, rejecting God's authority, uh, because even though they were claiming to speak for God and claiming to have a deeper understanding of the things of God, uh, ultimately, they're not actually listening to God. They're rejecting his authority. Yeah. And there's a little more, too. Um, <laughs> these are men who have come into the church uh, without proper authority, without the call, uh, without being charged, without being placed into these churches as teachers, which would have been really the practice at this point in the church's history. Um, you know, no matter if it's if it's an apostle or disciple coming through as an itinerant preacher or if it's someone who's been called out from among them, there is order uh, within the church, and there is a, there is hierarchy, especially you know at, at this time it's much more clear than it is uh, sometimes today. Different varieties of church polity, but it's not for men to get up um, and just say I've been given a revelation and I have authority to to teach, or I have authority to 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 preach or to take over or whatever. Yeah, they're they they're just they're they don't care for any kind of authority, and if you don't care for God's authority. Um, you're not going to care for any other kind of authority either because all authority comes from him. Right. Yes. And, and so then, so we're starting to get a bit of a picture here just in these, in these couple of, of words, um, defiling the flesh, relying on their dreams, rejecting authority. So um, it's going to be described very vividly uh, later, but they're really caught up um, in all of this and really sort of made almost insane or, or rabid by it. So, Relying on dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Why don't you unpack glorious ones for us? Uh, glorious ones is probably a reference uh, to the angels because he's actually going to he's going to talk about this account of Michael rebuking the devil, and basically he's and we'll have to kind of unpack that when we get into that verse a little bit more. But uh, these these false teachers, especially these protognostics are so flippant towards authority that they even go so far as to uh, rebuke angels. Uh, They don't care even for these spiritual authorities, and they just say all kinds of awful things about them. Yeah, it would be as if uh, when the angels appeared in the Christmas story that Mary just uh, slammed the door in their face, or Joseph completely rebukes them. Or, again, if we go back to, to Sodom, you know, you do have the angels present there as well. And we know we know what kind of happened there. 
Yeah. And to just say, you know, they have no power. Uh, we're just going to speak against them because we're better than the right. angels. And Jude is saying these guys, well, I mean, they are, they've become insane um, in, in their um, false teaching. And so that's why he brings up the example of Michael rebuking the devil. Right. Um, and and th there's this danger, you know, when you begin to imbibe this sort of thing and to think this way, you can really sort of get you can really get caught up in the enthusiasm of it and you really lose control of your faculties. You know, Paul does mention, you know, be, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, and that's very much at play here. We we tend to think of religion as some sort of heart exercise. And that's not the case. It's a holistic it's a holistic thing. And so heart, you know, will, emotions, and, and mind, but those can all be, be swept up in things like this. And it usually begins, you know, in the emotions, and that stirs up, and that really sort of overrides, um, overrides your brain. Ask any teenager. Emotions override your brain. It can happen. <laughs> and then, and on top of that, then, too, specifically here, because they were so caught up in their error because they were teaching these things uh, basically sin had spilled over and corrupted their thinking so that they become like unreasoning animals right. like jude would say Absolutely. and that's kind of what you're getting at man is not separated into a bunch of little compartments we're actually one holistic thing exactly so let's move on then now we're going to get into some really uh, interesting stuff these these references to other texts sometimes quotes from other texts and what what do we do with that uh in light of sola scriptura mm -hmm. and those sorts of things so verse 9 but when the archangel michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of moses he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said the lord rebuke you so before we get into the exegesis of that text let's talk a little bit about what what is it? I mean, this is not. I don't. I don't recall coming across this anywhere other than in Jude. Well, because we have a clear reference at the end of Deuteronomy um, that right. God buried Moses. Okay, so Moses was not buried by any human hand. He was taken out of their sight, and no one knows where he's buried to this day. So you get this this in Jude. You get this notion then that while the body of Moses was about to be buried or whatever. The, the devil came and tried to exercise a claim over Moses. And, and the idea being that, you know, Moses was a sinner. Um, cause if you remember, Moses, uh, murdered a man. <laughs> right. <laughs> he murdered the Egyptian before he was called to, to be the, the deliverer out of Egypt. Um, and so, yeah. So does the devil have a claim over him? Jude tells us that Michael rebuked the devil and said, no, he has been forgiven. You know, he is uh, by by grace, I guess you could say he has he has been received into the kingdom. And so um, but where does it come from, Willie? Where does this I mean, where does this whole account come from? There's a couple there's a couple hypotheses and there is you do get the essence of this or at least the the point of this in the scriptures. But first, we don't exactly know where this where this uh, reference is from. Some scholars say it's from the apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. The problem is that text is not in the versions of The Assumption of Moses that we have. At least not at least at least no reliable version of it. So this is one this is one we don't really know. Yeah. But what we do have is like Zechariah 3 where the Lord and the Lord said to Satan, "I or the Lord rebuke you." 
O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So you, you do have this, this echoed, or this is kind of an echoing of that verse from Zechariah as well. But the difficulty out of Zechariah is, is that it's the high priest Joshua that's the one in question, and right. not Moses. Right. But the principle of who rebukes who? So it's not, um, Michael does not say, I rebuke you, Satan. And and so we don't say that in the face of, of a demonic threat. We would say, the Lord rebuke you. And that's ultimately J- Jude's point here, is that uh, even the angels... Not that they're being nice to the devil. I mean, we don't want to think of it as they're just being polite to Satan. What they're doing is is that they're giving the judgment ultimately to God. Uh, the Lord rebuked well, and, and, and it's an expression of his authority as well. You know, this is all at play here. An authority which the angels themselves do not have. These false teachers, though, they're they're trying to claim for themselves this kind of authority. And so Jude is basically using this this account to show... They're so insane in their false teaching that they're doing something that not even the angels themselves, uh, who would, of all creatures, have a right to do so, uh, they don't do it either. Now, should these should these references to other books, and we're going to get into another one here very soon, should they concern the Christian? What should the Christian do with that? I don't think we should be overly concerned, right. um, because we we actually get this kind of referencing to other books of the Bible very frequently in the scriptures. I can think of, for example, Paul at in Acts when he, he's at the uh, Mars Hill, uh, quoting from uh, Greek uh, full, uh, Greek poets. Do you, do you have the reference to that, Willie, or not? Uh, you mean the poets that he's uh, the poets that he's actually quoting, or just just the uh, just the reference where that comes from? Oh, sure, yeah, it is. Well, while you're while you're looking, um, some other ones that it's come Acts, up it's too. It's Acts seventeen. Uh, it's Acts seventeen. Acts seventeen. Okay, so in Acts seventeen, you have reference to uh, uh, pagan poets. Uh, in in Kings and Chronicles, you very often have references to books that no longer exist. Uh, the books of the wars of the Lord, or you know these kinds of of, of references. And so we shouldn't really think that just because Jude is making reference to a book which is not part of the Bible, that that somehow brings this account into question. God can quote what he wants. It doesn't say two things. It does not communicate that Jude is somehow not inspired. Right. Second, it does not indicate that these books quoted are inspired. Right. And so lest, you know, lest we be, you know, concerned or, or tempted by these sorts of, these sorts of opinions. Yeah. Just because, I mean, just because Paul quotes those Greek poets doesn't mean that the Greek poets are somehow inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have to look at how Jude or Paul or whoever is using the quotation to fulfill the purposes of God. Right. And this case is to talk about the nature of these false teachers. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about unreasoning animals understand uh, without um, or understanding instinctively unreasoning animals uh, sea foam all kinds of crazy stuff so we'll be right back if you like what you're hearing and want more visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. 
www.wordfitlyspoken.org. And we're back, a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. I'm Pastor Willie Grills, here with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi talking about Jude. All right, so we've talked about the assumption of Moses, the archangel Michael rebuking the devil. And so here we come to verse 10, talking about uh, again about false teachers that Jude is writing against. So verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So unreasoning animals, they're brutes, they're boars. That would not fly in today's uh, in today's world. It's not very PC no, of you. No. <laughs> <laughs> They'll need a safe space uh, after after reading this. <laughs> Yeah, a trigger trigger <laughs> warning here, dude. Come on, but I mean the the point the point that Jude again is trying to make is that um, in their uh, hubris, in their pride, because they're even blaspheming against the angels themselves, uh, they're actually speaking. I mean, they're punching above their weight, basically, <laughs> uh, to use a metaphor. I mean, the, these guys don't know what they're getting into, and yet they run into it blindly, like animals saying things that they shouldn't say, and yet they say them anyway. Does that, does that seem fair, Willie, oh, yeah, or how would you more take than fair. It's charitable, even. But yes, that's that's, <laughs> that's what's happening. Um, and so, woe to them. That's something we need to bring back, by the way. I'm going to start putting this in the more sermons. Woe. Yeah, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. We'll start there. What was the way of Cain? Uh, well, the way of Cain was that um, perhaps out of envy, uh, I mean, we can debate that point, he uh, he murders his brother, uh, when he sees that uh, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was rejected. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's certainly the sin of envy. Envy and faithlessness, at the very least. At, and faithlessness, yeah, that's what I was going to get at. Because if he had been faithful, he would not have been envious. And so the two go together. Um, and and also because, I mean, he's a, a brother murderer. Um, right, and the, yeah, he commits fratricide. And these and these uh, these false teachers in teaching false teaching are actually murdering the souls of those around them, and so yeah, so there is a a very strong connection between what Cain is did, and how he became uh, the kind of archetype of of this way of of sinning, and what these false teachers are doing as well. Yeah, and, and the Bible really gives special attention to sinning against one's brother. I mean, Paul, you know, says it in Thessalonians, no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as he has forewarned and testified. It's a tremendous sin to sin against your brother. It's worse than, um, it's worse than, you know, mugging a stranger. This is your brother whom you're defrauding. This is the brother whose life you're taking. It's a different degree. It's the same sin, greater severity. Yeah, so that like the uh, the Israelites who would enslave their own brothers were guilty of a far, far greater sin uh, than if they, say, had enslaved uh, a foreigner. Yes. I mean, not not saying that they uh, that God is, is encouraging such a, um, activity in any way, but to do it to your own brother is, is unthinkable. Right. And this is who uh, Jude is comparing 
the false teachers too. Balaam. Balaam's an interesting character. <laughs> very much so. Now, now, what's the one thing? Okay, so everybody knows Cain. I mean, it's very common, very common story. What is the only thing that people tend to know about Balaam, or at least the first thing they know about Balaam? The first thing they typically know about Balaam is when he shows up in the book of Numbers and blesses, as Numbers puts it, Israel. Okay. Right? But the, the reason why it gets so tricky I mean, I was, is— I was going to say the donkey, but you know that's, oh, the that's what I was going to go with. Oh. <laughs> I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> because okay, it's, it's two things. It's two things going on. Um, it's an interesting story with the donkey and the Sunday school kids get to say ass, and so <laughs> so that that sticks in their minds. That's one that sticks in their minds. But the but the, the greater lesson is sometimes lost, and the rest of the story is sometimes okay. lost. Sorry. Proceed, sir. No, you're right. <laughs> um, people do tend to think about the the, the talking donkey. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. I was getting ahead. <laughs> you were putting the best construction on your middle or Sunday school class. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so what he was doing then is he is called by uh, the king Balak to curse Israel because Balak wants to actually uh, have victory over Israel. And he says, go curse him. Balaam says, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. That's what we usually know about him. That's kind of where our our recollection of Balaam ends. But Balaam is actually a much more dangerous character in the Old Testament because he actually shows up in several other places. Uh, do, you, do you know, what are some of those places, Willie? Uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament? The Old Testament. So he shows up again in the Old Testament in, uh, well, so we've got Numbers, and then he shows up again in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23 is the summary of all these incidents, and then his death is referenced in Joshua 13. Yeah, and what's interesting is, is that, like, in that summary and in a couple other places as well, Balaam actually leads Israel into sin. Yeah, so we've got, like, the, the main story is 22 to 20, numbers 22 to 24, and then, like, 30, 31, you get more, and then, yeah, and then Deuteronomy, Joshua, as far as the Old Testament goes. Because we're told in the Old Testament that when Israel yoked themselves to the, the Baal of Peor um, and committed a great um, sin of idolatry at Peor, we're told that Balaam was actually instigating that whole event. Mm -hmm. And so he is the one leading them into idolatry by instigating uh, their, their pagan neighbors to do this. Balaam is also described as being, well, rather greedy. So what are the New Testament... Testament references, Willie. Well, the the big one is um, Revelation two fourteen, uh, which is teaches that Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so to cause his, essentially to cause his own people to to stumble. Okay, and Balaam tried to get Israel to stumble, at least in the Numbers account, even though it kind of seems otherwise. But God turned that curse into a blessing so that he was only able to bless, even though, at least according to these other passages in the Bible, he wanted to curse them. Yeah. And the explicit reference to his sin being greed is Second Peter 2.15, mm -hmm. which have forsaken the right way, are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's in it for the money. Right. So greed. And so, yeah, and so greed is, and that's exactly what uh, Jude says here, that they abandon themselves for the sake of gain, that is the gain of money or the material gain, to Balaam's error. And then last we have Korah. So the rebellion, the Quranic rebellion. 
Won't you give us a quick rundown of that? Well, you look up the reference while I while I do give the rundown. <laughs> sure. But Korah is a Levite who comes up to Moses and says, "You're exalting yourself over over top of us. You know we should be able to uh, do the things that you're doing too." And so the Lord basically says, "Okay, you guys want to do this? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let's let's rumble." And uh, they they all offer incense to the Lord. And and the Lord rejects their offering, and uh, the earth actually swallows uh, Korah and and his fellow conspirators up. Right. Yeah. So you've got it's number sixteen. Yeah. Uh, Korah rebels against Moses. There's like two hundred fifty of them. There's fire from heaven, uh, earth opening up, swallowing people. It's interesting this earth opening up and swallowing people thing, because thanks to Charlton Heston's nineteen fifty Cecil B. DeMille's nineteen fifty three masterpiece starring Charlton Heston. People think this happens after Moses comes off the mountain to deliver the Ten Commandments and finds uh, finds the Hebrews uh, committing idolatry. So in the movie, Moses chucks the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They explode like hand grenades and destroy the calf, and then the earth opens up and swallows them. That's not where that – like that is not what happens. So the movie really appropriates this event of the earth opening up and swallowing and puts it um, – and puts it uh, at the foot of uh, of Mount Sinai. It makes for a good um, it makes for good visual effects. Well, it's, though, really. it, it's much more yeah, it's much more spectacular. <laughs> and really, what actually happens in the Bible, they probably wouldn't have put in a in a film in the 1950s. So what grind, grinding up the golden calf, forcing everybody to drink it, and then murdering most of of the idolaters? Exe- you don't executing, think executing, it? yes. <laughs> oh, execute! Yeah, I'm sorry. No, you're right. Executing. Right. No, yeah. It's just you know, I didn't 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 get past the the censors in those days. <laughs> always interesting. That's always what I think about um, when I watch that movie. Uh, Cecil B. Yeah, that that and we need Heston now more than ever. You know, those two things. So, <laughs> but <laughs> fair enough. But yeah, fair so enough. that's that's Cora, and so now, so we have these sins. We've got we have murder. You know, or uh, faithlessness, envy, greed, envy and greed being, you know, related but different and uh, kind of like jealousy and envy. Right. But they're all they all kind of get attached. And then they're all, they all fly right. Together. And then uh, rejection of authority and re- really rejection of of station, um, a rejection of order that God has established. So uh, you want to read on for us, say 12 and 13 there. Yeah, uh, a lot of metaphors here, uh, very colorful, and I think we'll get a lot out of them here. So, uh, there are th- these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I know. I love that yeah. language. It's just beautiful. And, uh, oh, yeah, tremendous. Uh, beautiful language. Very stark, though. It's not the horoscope that, that they wanted to read that day. And <laughs> so, yeah, spots uh, – or I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. What do we have here? Oh, they, yeah, I'm sorry. Hidden reefs at your love feasts. So they're they're uh, they're dangers at your love feasts. Now now this is interesting because usually this verse is going to be uh, spots on your love feast or blemishes, but then we have this reading uh, hidden reefs. Now what might that signify? A hidden reef. 
Well, it'd be a, a boat sailing along and then all of a sudden running aground when they didn't expect exactly. it. Uh, so that so that destruction comes uh, at an, uh, in an unexpected way. Right. I mean, that's the metaphor of hidden Absolutely. reefs. Absolutely, anyway. yeah, because you don't see them. You're cruising along, you think everything's fine, and then your ship sinks. And your love feasts. Now, this is an interesting this is interesting uh, for the church. So the, the love feast, it's certainly tied to the Eucharistic feast. That is to say that it's tied to the Lord's Supper. And so let's unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about love feasts or agape feasts, as the cool kids say. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the love feasts, I mean, there's a lot of debate about what exactly they were. Some people try to make them as like a a, a meal that they would have before uh, the service, you know, before you'd actually go into the the, the Lord's Supper um, or maybe afterwards or something, kind of a, a fellowship time. But I don't know. What do you think about it, Willie? I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case here. Yeah, I'm not convinced it's necessarily a full meal, and I don't think that that, that really should affect how we understand this because the point, the big point of the love feast is going to be uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That's actually uh, what I think is um, at play here. Uh, it's it's supposed to be a joyous meal, whatever, um, that's marked by unity. And that's, that's sort of the key here. So we have uh, their spots on your love feast, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, that sort of thing. Okay. So let's assume that it has something to do with the institution or something to do with uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, what okay. would that mean then? Well, what was happening uh, when Paul addresses the church uh, at their uh, similar feasts? People were coming in early and doing what? And they were just kind of going their own way. They weren't waiting for each other. I mean, that was that was Paul's problem. Yeah, they're sort of abusing this, coming in, serving themselves. Now, if we interpret this in the context of the Lord's Supper, it takes on a different tenor because now you have greedy, faithless men who are swept up in their own passions and who are rejecting authority, who are now coming in and really taking over these love feasts uh, without, without any discernment at all for what they're doing. So they're receiving the body and blood of Jesus unworthily, without comprehending it, and they're causing their their brothers in the faith to sin in doing mm -hmm. so because they're being swept up along with it. So whatever we want to make it, if even if you're not comfortable conceding that it's the Lord's Supper or tied to the Lord's Supper, it's still a different – it's different than just breakfast or dinner. It's different than a normal meal. Even even if we take the interpretation that it's a, that it's a, a church potluck, well, that still ought to be some sort of expression of unity and faithfulness. And and so it, it's just it's simply it's beyond a simple meal. Yes, it has significance to fellowship and to order within the church. And so because these guys are like these hidden reefs at this, um, when there should be this expression of unity um, in the Lord's Supper, right. for example, uh, they're actually causing the ship to sink and causing d disunity in the very place where there should be right. uh, the most unity. Right um, at at this love feast, and so that's what makes their error so dangerous. Ought to be the ultimate expression of unity within the church, because we're all confessing the same faith, we're all partaking of the same uh, sacrament, and that is intended to be an expression of the unity of the church, and all and all you know, hopefully receiving the same uh, the same gift, which would be the you know the forgiveness of sins. 
if it is talking about the Lord's Supper, then it certainly it certainly makes sense that it would be talking about it because of all of this talk about unity, fellowship, and really teaching the importance of um, a unity in doctrine and a unity in practice, uh, which expresses itself through authority, as, and specifically through a teaching authority, uh, which which is clearly a problem to Jude's audience. Yeah, and that actually kind of brings us then into our next example too, because these men who had usurped this teaching authority for themselves and were becoming right. this stumbling block for the church, as Jude says, were shepherds feeding themselves. A direct reference, of course, back into passages like Ezekiel 34, uh, the, the, the shepherds that God did not send, and yet they're, they're destroying the sheep and uh, feeding themselves, really only out for their own gain. Uh, so we kind of get a, a tie back to the, uh, the, the, the problem of Balaam again. Yeah, so they are described as clouds without water, carried about by the winds. It's very interesting, too. Clouds without water, they're dry. Yeah, they they, they look like they're going to be promising. I mean, these would be the kinds of clouds that look like they're going to rain, but then they ultimately bring nothing. They're empty. They're empty vessels. Yep, they just blow along in the wind wherever and don't actually deliver what they promise. Yeah, and, and swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They're tumbleweeds. They, <laughs> they have tumbleweeds out your way? Do we have tumbleweeds out your way? Come on. <laughs> my, my, the fences around me just become littered with them during the, the late fall. So, yeah, so I mean, well, you have now this. Now you think about Jude when you and now walk your fence. Yeah, I'll use this as uh, tumbleweeds as an example. And of course, his point here is that Exactly in the time when the trees themselves should have been bearing fruit in autumn, like, you know, during the harvest, they actually have nothing. Uh, kind of like the fig tree that Christ curses when it should right. have had fruit. And so they're, they're useless trees and they're twice dead because, well, I mean, they're fruitless and they're also uprooted and fallen over. I mean, they're just everything that they should have been, they're not. Right. And, and Jude, excuse me, and Jude continues with this. Uh, Wild waves of the seas, casting up foam. Okay, so just sort of chaotic and just casting up foam, and sea foam is just really, there's nothing. Or it could also be casting up uh, just filth, like, you know, water that's should have been bringing life or whatever, but it's just casting up junk. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, should, say, I should say, yeah, I should say nothing of value. And, and so you have that then... Uh, Casting up the foam of their own shame. So there you go. Nothing good. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of other darkness has been reserved forever. Now, the wandering stars is interesting because you, you could have you, you have two options here. A wandering star, uh, which could be a reference to a planet. And so stars are basically fixed, but the planets, you know, they're going to be they're going to be in a different spot. They're, they're not stationary or a wandering star can refer to a shooting star, which shines brightly. And then burns out very quickly. Sure. I could buy either one of those. And so, so yeah, either one. The point is sort of the, the transitionary nature and the temporary nature of these people. It's 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 an echo of the of being uprooted or rootless. Yeah, when they should have been stationary or fixed, they're 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 wandering around and just kind of going wherever. So I mean that's that's the metaphor. And for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Yikes. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a place that you want to be. So now that's interesting because we talked about um, the last time we talked about Jude that hell was created for the fallen angels. Yes, 
And now here you have um, – now they're sort of lumped in with them, uh, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So now they've been marked out for that condemnation that was meant for the demons. Yes, and participating in that judgment as well. And it's been reserved for them. God has God God is not overlooking what they're doing. He looks down and he sees and will avenge. Yep. Exactly. So we should be we should beware of them. Um either to be careful about the deposit that has been given to us as teachers of the church or to mark and avoid these men um if we if we are are the hearers. Uh, so that we don't participate in uh, their judgment as well. So moving on, do you want to take us through uh, 14 to 16? Yep. All right, so starting at verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. How many times did I say ungodly? I, I'm not really sure. Okay, let's... <laughs> all right, it's um, strong language again. Okay, now we come to... Uh, another apocry apocryphal reference. So that's this is going to be from First Enoch. Now Enoch is a significant character in the Bible. You know what's one of the most common things that we know about or known about Enoch? Well, really, one of the few things we know about him at all is that he was uh, translated or taken directly into heaven without dying. That's unique, and that says something about him too. Yep, because he walked with God. I mean, that's what the, the account in Genesis tells us. And so I think I think what Jude is doing, we can talk about the the uh, the apocryphal reference here in just a second. But I think what Jude is doing is he's trying to show in the in a way that using this guy who comes from even before the flood. I mean, Enoch lives before the flood to show that the judgment upon these false teachers is not something that's just willy nilly or that God is like, OK, I'm, I guess I'll do it. But rather that. God's seriousness is so great that this uh, judgment was predicted from so long ago. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I can I can go with that. And, you know, I don't know if we need to spend too much time on the apocryphal nature of it. We we uh, covered that a bit in um with Michael. With Michael, yeah. yeah. You want to move on, or do we want to talk about apocryphal literature some more? It's up to you. No, I I think I think we kind of made the point. Maybe just to to briefly rehash to to emphasize that just because the uh, Jude is quoting from an apocryphal book, one that's not part of the Bible, doesn't mean that it's somehow less inspired. Because God can use whatever He wants to do what He wants, and that can include uh, quoting from books uh, that come from other places. And so I think that's all that really needs to be said. Yeah, and so the so the meat of this is. The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Yes. So 10,000 of his holy ones being the uh, a reference to the angels, uh, because the angels are frequently used as agents of God's judgment. I mean, we saw that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we see that in other places in the Bible as well where the angels are the ones that actually carry out the judgment of God. Right, right. And it's another case of God uh, working through through his agents. 
these agents in this case just happen to be his angels. I mean, he could use other agents like, you know, men to do it, but in this case, his angels. So, And then he gets, he turns up the heat. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Grumblers and malcontents following their own sinful desires. The One of the things that false teachers often do is to spread discontent within the ranks. To be sure, there are times where uh, a preacher must ruffle feathers and a teacher must ruffle feathers. We we understand that. But one of the ways in which false teachers work is they sow doubt, Mm -hmm. and doubt is often uh, sown via grumbling and murmuring, uh, complaining and gossip. Mm -hmm. And again, this is all for these teachers. They're all about undermining the established order, undermining the established teaching, what was laid down by the apostles, and sealing their own fates here. So they're grumblers, they're malcontents, following their own sinful desires, whatever those desires may be. Here it seems uh, to be a lust for power and a lust for money. And then showing uh, loudmouth boasters, so boasting in their own achievements, their own accomplishments, or really boasting in their supposed new revelation. Yeah, that I know more than you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, or yeah, I know more than you. God has given me more than you, uh, a greater greater knowledge, a greater revelation, greater understanding, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, that's an interesting one. Um, Basically, they're manipulators. They're gaslighting people in order to gain gain advantage. Yeah, they're not they're not afraid to be political in that sense, uh, and to use their their conniving and their scheming to get what they want. Absolutely. In this case, to to gain a position of of high authority, which doesn't rightfully belong to them. And so, any other comments on those verses before we uh, head to break? No, I think I think we've got it covered. I mean, we're going to be moving on now into uh, the main thrust of the book of Jude, uh, which I'm looking forward to. So, right, the admonition to the admonition to the audience, uh, to Jude's audience, which is the admonition to all Christians. So, we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. I'm Pastor Grills here with Pastor Heidi. We're talking about Jude, wrapping up the book of Jude here. And we've been talking about false teachers. We know their character. Now we're going to talk about the admonition to the hearer. So Zelwyn, go ahead and read for us verses 17 to 23. Okay. Jude writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Great stuff. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here is an appeal to authority. And indeed, he must appeal to that authority. Because one of the arguments here is that these false teachers do not respect authority, nor do they have authority. Yeah, and and not only authority, but also, I guess you could say, a recent authority, right? Because right? he's yeah. been... He's been referring to all of these old examples and that come from the scriptures and these different places. Um, but now he's actually saying, you know, listen to the legitimate authority, the ones that you even, you know, for yourselves that you've heard in some cases, probably uh, the apostles. Right. And what did they say? In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So you knew this was coming, folks. You knew this. The apostles warned you. Remember that. This is what they warned you about. Yeah, this is not something that should surprise us, like as if false teaching just kind of comes out of nowhere. No, the apostles told us beforehand, and so and, and Jesus himself told us beforehand. Uh, so we really shouldn't be surprised, but we should be ready. And they're scoffers. They don't take any of this seriously. They're mockers. They mock the teaching that was handed down to the church. And they walk after their own ungodly lusts. So they wave off the teachings of Christ and establish their own order in order to satisfy their own desires. And that that word scoffers is kind of interesting because uh, like in the Psalms, for example, or in uh, Proverbs, uh, one who scoffs is the the ultimate kind of fool. Uh, and fool, in the, not in the sense of like he's an idiot, but a fool in the sense of rejecting God. Right. Uh, and so these are... These are the uh, the false believers par excellence, so to speak, uh, to be a scoffer, to reject the things of God. Very much. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Division is a huge problem. It's a perennial problem within the church. And it has been a problem since really the very beginning. And it's one of the chief sins. It's one of the you know, Jesus Christ prays that we would be one. And what does that mean? Well, one in our confession and one in mission, uh, one in Jesus Christ. But division really shatters that unity. Yeah, and, and the division that these false teachers are bringing is the only thing that they're bringing. They cannot unite because they are teaching falsely. And they're, and they're worldly. What does that mean? Well, they, they walk the way of the world. They walk the way of death. We need to bring worldly back. <laughs> it's it's a word that needs to be used more. You're right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when, when everything becomes sort of a, uh, a, a an adiaphoran as far as your conduct goes, or as far as the way you look or the way you act, uh, then there's virtually no distinction between Christians of the world and Christians not of this world. Now, to be sure, it, it's not a question of fashion or so much as it's a question of ethic um, and a question of piety. But it is something that we've lost a little bit of. Uh, Christians are not the same as the world, and they stand out. Uh, they don't stand out because they stand and protest funerals with uh, offensive signs and such, but they stand out simply because their manner of living, first, you know, that's the first thing the world sees is, is their conduct is, is different. 
and their love for neighbor is different. And their worship is different, quite frankly. And you especially consider this context, Christian worship does not look like the worship around them. I mean, maybe synagogue worship in some ways, but by this time, the division's already there. I mean, we're probably not to 70 AD yet with the really big rift. Um, and, and certainly the early church liturgy borrows from from the synagogues a bit. But, uh, you know, they're worshiping Jesus Christ as God here uh, and worshiping Jesus Christ exclusively or the Trinity exclusively. It's, it's a very, very different, um, different, eth- uh, different theology, and it's a different ethic. You know, they value life. They value children. They value widows and the elderly. Uh, they value chastity. They value fidelity. They value honor in ways different from the pagans and Jews around them. Yeah, and you get also the reference like um, in Paul. I'm trying to remember where it is exactly. Uh, where he he admonishes uh, Christian women, for example, to not let their adornment be of gold um, in the worldly sense of just being um, flashy just for the sake of being flashy, Peter 3. but to... Uh, yeah, is that first Peter, first Peter three? like look. three three? Uh, let not it be that outward adorning of plating the hair and wearing gold, but of put or, or of putting on apparel. Yes, ah, close enough. Paul Peter, eh. <laughs> six and one, half a dozen and the other. Right. Um, okay, so Peter, yeah, and and saying that their their outward adornment uh, should be. Yeah, but, so not the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And so in this way, they prove themselves to be not worldly because they are, they have the, the uh, actual spiritual adornment uh, that is, that is fitting in the sight of God. And that's interesting. This modesty and this meekness really would stand in contrast to the teachers described here in Jude. Yeah. Because they are so boisterous, they're loudmouths, they're scoffers. It's it's polar opposites. They're murderers. They're probably drunkards. I mean, the whole the whole. So yeah. So there we go. So worldly people and devoid of the spirit. So the spirit of God does not divide, um, abide with them. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So first, building up um, in the holy faith. What does that signify? Well, I suppose we have to ask the question again, is this the faith that I believe or is this the faith once delivered? Which one is which one is he talking about? I think in this case, oh boy. <laughs> it's probably a because you're building yourselves up, it would be strengthening the deposit that has been given to you, but at the same time, you know, you could also say of making their calling and election sure. Um so it might be both actually. I mean, where where do you want to take it, Willie? Well, there's a couple things at play here. Building yourselves up is clearly an admonition to, you know, to strive for for this piety. If I if I may use a loaded word, sure. And it, but but it's also a building up in the confession as well. What do we believe? Because if we're talking about proto gnostics. There's going to be fundamental beliefs about the nature of God that are different. Mm-hmm. So it's not just questions of fornication and envy and things like that. Although. Obviously, that's at play. So the basic fundamentals, it's ethics and theology, or excuse me, ethics and doctrine. Now, what I think is significant is, is it's a little bit ambiguous. Building yourselves up, is it building yourself up individually? Like he's talking to a you know plural audience, so building yourselves up, you know, each individual, 
or is it building yourselves up in the sense of building one another up? And it's a, it's a bit of both. Well, it is a bit of both, although I, I think we should try to emphasize, because it's not an emphasis that gets much emphasis in our day and age, uh, that it is building up as the church. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's exactly where I would I would preach this. It's where I would go with this. Uh, building yourselves in that community of the faith. And what does that look like? What is that, you know, just for, for a contemporary here in, you know, your Missouri Synod Lutheran Church or mine, what's that going to look like? Well, I well, I suppose in the most basic sense, it would just be being a part of the congregation, you know, attending uh, the Word of God on a regular basis and hearing it uh, so that we know what it is that God has said, um, and also trying to uh, show these works of mercy towards those uh, who are who are joined with us in the congregation. So uh, just, I guess, just realizing that we aren't all off by ourselves, right? <laughs> Would be a, an excellent step. With apologies to my uh, to cousin Tom T. Hall, um, Jesus and me got our own thing going on. Not quite what the New Testament teaches. Not what the Old <laughs> Testament teaches, for that matter, either. Um, you do need you do need the community of faith. It, it is an essential. It, it isn't an option. No man is an island, and man exists to live in community. Now we make that a little bit ridiculous. Uh, you know, today where, um, you know, with the coffee shops and this and the, I mean, you know, kind of like trying to do this hip urbanite kind of thing. And that's fine if that's what people want to do um, as far as their church building. But the essence of it is no matter what, coming together around the word of God and receiving God's good gifts together and then living life together. Um, loving one another, building one another up, and sincerely, that, that, that sincere familial love that should exist in the Christian community. And it's not just a case of going to church for catechism class or going to church for an hour on Sunday. It, it extends well beyond uh, the divine service uh, or Bible study or those sorts of things. It's much deeper than that, that communal spirit of the church. And you and we would and we hope that our preaching, you know, and our teaching, and all the good things of the church, you know, feed the people, and then that extends out, you know, beyond just the normal service times. Yeah, it's not exclusive to those things, but it's inclusive of those things, and so it's absolutely inclusive of those things, and those things are central. Uh, but my point is that those things inform. Then the, the person isn't just merely a sponge, just sort of soaking these things up, but that the Christian does act upon what he believes, that a Christian's confession motivates them in love for God and love for neighbor. I, I'd say that's Jude's whole point, wouldn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, broadcast done. We could have done that in 12 minutes, one episode. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. We still got more to go. And praying in the Holy Spirit. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about praying in the Holy Spirit. So, Zoan, what does it mean to to have the Holy Ghost or to or to pray in the Spirit? Well, if you look back in the previous verse where it talks about the scoffers uh, causing divisions and being devoid of the Spirit, I think we have here in verse 20 a reference to uh, the unity which all believers do have in the Spirit, uh, so that it's the contrast between those who are in Christ and uh, those who are, are separated. Now, to pray in the Spirit, it's probably important that we mention this out, it's not a one-time, you know, utterance that comes upon you when you receive uh, the Holy Spirit or that sort of thing. So true or false, 
all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Absolutely true. Absolutely. Without question. And so what does that mean for the Christian then? That when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the the, the helper who was promised to us, who will keep us faithful uh, and who will keep and give us all of the good things that uh, God has promised to us. So it's not a, a special gift that, that Jude is referring to or anything like that, but rather uh, the, the promise of, of the, uh, the helper, of the paraclete, to use the technical Absolutely. term. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, is, is there with you and guiding you, teaching you how to pray, yes, but also supplementing your prayers when you don't know what to say. There's the Holy Spirit. And even then, even more, Jesus Christ is now interceding on your behalf as well. The Christian has so many, so many gifts that we often we often forget about it, just how wonderful it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself intercedes on our behalf, and God the Holy Spirit is here building us up, strengthening our faith, keeping us um, in paths of righteousness. Yeah, and and we have here then also in, in verse twenty one. Uh, keeping ourselves in the love of God, which is something that can only happen through the working of the Spirit as yeah, well. Yes, absolutely. We we of ourselves cannot do that. And and that uh, promise which we have then is that God himself will be the one who keeps us safe, keeps us uh, safe from these false teachers and also safe in that holy faith which was once delivered to the saints. Right. And we keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That glorious anticipation of the return of Jesus, our vindication, and the glorious life in his eternal kingdom. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So have mercy on those who doubt. Don't cast them off when they ask questions or when they worry or when they fear. Strengthen them and affirm them with the promises of the gospel when necessary, or admonish them at times when need be. To paraphrase Jude, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, that's really interesting. Uh, to, uh, to show mercy uh, with fear, or to show mercy by snatching them out of the fire— so it's, um, you know, two different things, really the same idea here, snatching them out of the fire. When you see your brother doing something heinous or about to make a really, really bad decision uh, or committing grievous sin, you should warn them and you should rescue them from it. What does James say about that? To turn a sinner from his ways. James 5.20, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his ways uh, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of uh, cover a multitude of sins. Um, and you know the full context. My brother, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, you know that consider this: whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So th- this this uh, concept is not unique to Jude. Uh, maybe he learned it from his brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, they, they are so, related. So. Right. To, to, to others, show mercy with fear. So snatch them out of the fire, show mercy with fear, hitting them the garment stained by the flesh. So what's the significance of saving them with fear? Well, it would probably be the fear of God, right? Sure. We have a, we have a, a reference that we should uh, fear him 
uh, who is able to to destroy both body and soul in hell, that he is a God worthy of our um, actual fear, but also that uh, that we recognize that when we fear God, we do so because we give him glory. So it's not a, a what we might call a, a servant fear or a servile fear, you know, just fearing punishment, but rather that we fear him uh, in a way that uh, brings glory to his name. And in this case, uh, showing others mercy, not in a, a flippant way, I suppose, uh, but in a way that that brings that glory to God. Absolutely. Now, we, we want to be careful because this isn't an admonition to find fault with your brother, to pick every little statement apart or that sort of thing. Because we're called to show mercy as well. Everybody is imperfect. Everybody stumbles in their own unique way. So we don't just go around looking for faults in our brothers. Uh, but when error is manifest, then we, we should it is permissible to say something. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be too shy about it, but we shouldn't be so bold about this as well. Uh, because there is there is a point where you're sinning by simply nitpicking everything about your neighbor and that sort of thing. And on the other hand, there is a point where if we don't say anything, then we're also sinning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Neither one's an option to just sit back and go, well, hey, he knows the gospel. He comes to church. He's he's, he's cool. God's cool. No, only it, only God can judge me. Yeah. You yeah. Know <laughs> Apologies to Tupac, but, <laughs> but it, yeah. But again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this this communal idea, and that's part of it. We do hold one another accountable. And to say, hey, Frank, maybe, you know, maybe you need to to look at what you're doing here. Or just flat out call to repent, whatever you want to do. But 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 there is this 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 admonishing of of the brother when he stumbles. And really there comes a point where we've all seen people who are self destructive, who harm people. And these people are Christians oftentimes, and they, they're they allowed to sort of go into this spiral of self-harm because we've become so uncomfortable. Even pastors have, be, have sometimes become so uncomfortable with, with talking to them uh, for various fears, fears of driving them away or fear of the awkwardness of the situation um, or perhaps a disbelief um, in Jude's admonition here. So now the Christian has this sort of weight um, put on them to say, hey, watch out for your brother. Some say with fear, show mercy. And now the Christian might be saying, man, that's a that is a tremendous that is a tremendous burden for me to bear. Or we're called to walk in holiness. That's a tremendous burden for me to bear. We're we're charged to be faithful in times of persecution. That's a tremendous burden. But the doxology here at the end uh, gives strength to the Christian. It begins with verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. <laughs> Jude is quite simply telling them not to fear that it is God who keeps you from stumbling and he is your God. And we're, it is, we're lauding and magnifying him here. He's the one who keeps you from stumbling and he is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty and dominion and authority, which these false teachers do not possess that the true God who possesses all authority through whom all authority is given is the one 
who washes you, cleanses you, sanctifies you, and sustains you until the last day. It is the work of God to the glory of God through his vessels, the Christian. And we have that clear promise here then, too, that even as we struggle with false teachers and even as we have to fight against them, we know that we aren't doing it alone, that we have a a clear promise from our Savior who is greater than anything in the world and that um, we have and that he is able to preserve us even in the most trying and difficult of times. And I think we can give glory to that. Absolutely. This is the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. If you like what you hear and want to see more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. That's wordfitlyspoken.org. Facebook.com slash wordfitly. Or follow us on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless.